All right, so anyway, guys, it's always uh, exciting for me to come be sharing the Word of God with you guys. We're going to be reading, uh, we're going to be taking a look at Psalm 24. And as uh, Brandy mentioned ex- uh, earlier, we're in a series called Summer in the Psalms. Uh, we're excited that we're able to um, have provided a place for our pastor and his family to take six weeks off to be on sabbatical. It's the first time they've done that in, in uh, seven years, so let's continue to pray for them. And um, during this time, we're going to have different speakers coming. Um, I'm not a guest, but I'm here. So anyway, so let's get into the word. Today, we're going to be looking at the king of glory. Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah, which means a time to pause and to contemplate. So let's do that. Take a moment, just think about what we just read. Verse 7 says, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. Lord, we come before you, thanking you for your word, grateful that your word reveals who you are to us. And we are grateful for these songs that you have provided in your word, your songs that teach us how to respond to who you are. Lord, I pray that we may be inspired to praise, to worship you, to seek you, to want to know you better, and to live lives that honor you through your word. Speak to us today. Help us engage with our minds and our hearts, and that we may be transformed by your word. We ask you this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So the main idea is that our king of glory reigns over the whole earth, and only those who have clean hands and a pure heart can come before him. And I'll say it again. Our king of glory reigns over the whole earth and those who have clean hands and pure hearts can come before him. Um, it's exciting for me to be uh, um, in, this, in Psalm 24. Um, Psalm 24 asks some questions. And they ask some questions that I try to ask myself and to answer every single Sunday when I lead worship. The number one question is, who is this God that we serve? What do we know about him? What do we know about him? What does the word of God reveal to us? And the second question is, how should we respond to him? So 
Um, you may me have, heard, have maybe heard me give my worship spiel before whenever I've taught on worship or psalms. But here at City Church, we like to sing songs that are flooded with the word of God. Matt Redman, a famous worship leader, said that worship is a response to revelation. So we worship God according to what we know about him. So what we do is we want to sing songs that are filled with truth, but we also want to lead in how to respond to this truth. We also want to lead in surrender. We want to lead in lives that respond to the truth of who God is by living lives that glorify him. Amen? So this is something that we try to do every Sunday. Um, So I want to encourage you, during times of worship, consider what God has done in your life. Um, It's easy for us to just, in this uh, electronic age where we see screens, sometimes we're just looking at screens and we're not even engaging with our minds or with our hearts. But think about the songs. Think about the words of the songs. Many of the words come straight from the word of God or alluding to something that's in scripture. And think about how that connects with you personally. One thing about the Psalms that I love, Psalms, the Psalms take an idea about God and it lets it settle into our heart and become ours. So if I, even with songs, with worship, if I say God is good, it's just like this idea that's out in the air. But if I say, God, you're good, it changes everything. It's not an idea, any, an idea anymore. It's something personal that I'm able to express to God because I believe it. Amen? So many theologians have tripled this psalm up with, with two other psalms, and they uh, say that they are messianic psalms. They're teaching us a lot about Jesus, the Messiah, or Jesus the Christ, or Jesus the anointed one of God. And, invert, and, and it's, it's, called, it's tripled up with uh, Psalm 22 that reveals him as the one who will suffer on the cross for our sins. And even Jesus himself, he quoted the psalm when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 23 speaks to us, speaks to us about the good shepherd, which is Christ. And Psalm 24 speaks to us about Jesus, the king of glory. This is a song of praise and celebration, and actually the word praise means celebration. And uh, so we are praising God for who he is, and we are celebrating his actions and his character, and we are boasting of him and joyfully acknowledging him, which is what we do when we praise God. With some psalms, we don't know the context. In some psalms, we know exactly what the context is because the word of God tells us, and with some psalms, we don't know exactly, but with this particular psalm, we, a lot of most theologians in history believe that this psalm was written when the Ark of the Covenant was coming back to the city of David, when it was coming back to Jerusalem. So a little bit of background of what we, we believe this, this psalm was written. And we just came out of the, a, a series in First Samuel. So I'm not sure if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about that the sons of Eli, who were supposed to be priests, had taken the Ark of the Covenant into battle. By this time, the people of Israel were, were turning, had turned away from God. But because they used the Ark of the Covenant before to bring some uh, victory in battles, they thought, oh, let's bring this good luck charm and see what happens. So the Ark of the Covenant was stolen by the Philistines, the Israel was defeated, 
And when the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant, let me see what the Ark of the Covenant is, first of all. The Ark of the Covenant is a, is a, a wooden box, and it's uh, uh, overlaid in gold. And on top of it, it has uh, two golden angels with their w- wings spread forward. And between those two angels is, con- is considered where the, where, the, where the throne of God is. And the angels around him is supposed to be like a replica of God's presence. So during the people of Israel, God had given Moses a plan on, on building this ark. And there were um, some articles including the Ten Commandments and, and a jar of manna. And I'm not going to get into all that because I can get into a rabbit trail there. But it was called the Ark of Testimony and the Ark of the Covenant. And it was where the presence of God was. And this is what, where, where the presence of God followed the Israelites throughout the desert. So anyway, fast forward a couple of years later, uh, they had lost the Ark to the Philistines. So when the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant to their people, they experienced a lot of curses and just judgment because of the Ark of the Covenant. There. And they're like, hey, you know what? We don't want this anymore. Just take it away from us. And it was put in the house of, of Abinadab. So when, J- when and during this time, uh, this is when um, David became the king of Israel. And he said, you know what? I want the Ark of the Covenant back here. You know why? Because I'm not the king. God is the king. Here on earth, naturally, I may be the king of Israel, but I am not the king. God is the king. So he, um, he said, hey, let's bring it back. And he had this the whole celebration and, and uh, the sons of Abinadab, they brought the ark on a cart and it was pulled by oxen and one of the oxen stumbled. I'm not sure if you guys remember this. And the, the ark was about to fall and, and Uzzah, one of Abinadab's son, he put his hand on the ark to stop it and Uzzah dropped dead. And it was just like, whoa, what's going on here? It was a scary moment. David was even angry, like, man, I did all this and, you know, this is what happens. So David had to go back into the law and to see what went wrong here. See, so the, whole, the, the presence of God is holy. And there was, a, the, God had prescribed a way for the ark to be carried. And it wasn't to be carried on a cart and it wasn't to be touched. The ark had, uh, I guess, circles, what do you call it? Like holes, rings. rings, that's it. And they put poles through and it was supposed to be carried on the shoulders of the Levites who were the priests. So David's like, oh, okay, now I know how to do this. So he had this big celebration coming, and he did it the right way, the way that God had told him to do it, and he invited. Uh, so, so we believe that this psalm was written when the Ark of the Covenant was brought back. And you guys know the story. I, I know something that they told me that was actually false. I remember when I was in church, they said, oh, and, these, and David was dancing in his underwear, they said. And that's not actually accurate. He was dancing in his linen priestly garments. And here we see David as the priest king. He was, the, he was, like I said, he wasn't the king at this moment. He was overjoyed that the presence of God was coming back to Israel so that God can rule and reign in his people through David. Amen? So this is, the, this is where we are. Um, and let's just get back into the word. Uh, Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and the, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So two truths that we hear in these verses is number one, that everything belongs to God. And the reason why everything belongs to God is because God created it. So one thing that's important here is when we see the word Lord here, The word Lord here is actually the name Yahweh. 
And Yahweh is the, the name, the personal name of God. So when we say God or Lord, it's not a, in this case, it's not a generic word. It's talking specific, specifically about Yahweh, who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, he revealed this name to Moses at the burning bush. And what does this name mean? This, main, this name means that he is the covenant-making God, that he was the covenant-keeping God, that he is self-sufficient, he lacks nothing, so he doesn't need or depend on anyone or anything. He is sovereign, he is faithful, and what he was communicating to Moses and wants to communicate to us is that he is present. He told Moses, I will be with you. And the presence of God became God's assurance and comfort to the people of Israel as they, as they uh, went through the desert. Um, not all of them continue to trust in him, but that's another story. So anyway, so David was using uh, God's personal name, Yahweh, here. Um, and he's saying that the world belongs to Yahweh. And when we think about those times, all we think about pretty much is Israel because you know, that's our history as, as Christians. But Israel was such a small country compared to all the other countries. So this was a big deal for David to be saying, hey, I know I'm part of this little country, and all these other countries had their gods, and they were warrior gods. But he's saying, the God of this little country is the God. He is Yahweh, and he is the owner of the whole world. You know what I'm saying? So it was kind of a big deal for him to be saying that. So it says here in verse, uh, that it says, uh, the, the, not only did he say the earth, but he said, but, the full, but its fullness or the fullness thereof. Basically, everything that fills the earth, not only the earth itself, but everything that fills the earth belongs to Yahweh. So to Yahweh belongs the world. God is ultimately sovereign over all things, and he is ultimately sovereign over us. He owns everything, every person, every life, every moment, every era, and every time. Every animal, plant, fish, bird, everything belongs to God. And not only that, like I said, it says that the reason why he owns everything is because he's the creator. So there's one creator and one sustainer of the world. God is greater and bigger and more awesome than any of his creation. And that's just something that's natural. One thing we see, oh, I think I, okay, yeah. So um, in, in John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Just talking about Jesus here. In Colossians uh, 1.16, it says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So the world is subject to Christ. He has created the world and it is all his and he owns the world and at first glance i think if anybody that's in church we say oh god owns the whole world you know we know the song he got the whole world in his hands and all that we agree with that but do we actually take time to think about what that means for us personally 
If God is the owner of the whole world, then we don't get to say things like, my body, my choice. We don't get to, de- to make decisions for ourselves without consulting God. If I know, if I, if I, I mean, I remember when I was uh, in sixth grade, I lent RC Pro-Am to my friend Lionel, a little Nintendo game, and he decided to lend it to Lens. And that got me upset because that's mine. I made him a steward of my game, and he decided to make a decision about it that I would not be happy with, and that got me upset. Might be a corny example, but it's the same thing with God. If we belong to God and God is our master and he's the owner of everything in the world, then we need to be able to, we need to consult with him before we make decisions. We need to think about what does God want from me? And we can look at this in a very individual level because I believe that God has a plan for all of his followers. But first it starts with what the word of God says about us. When we make a decision, do we think about what does Jesus want from me? And that's something that we always need to take into consideration. So it's good for us to be aware of this as we look at that he is the one that owns the whole world. So as we see him as the owner of everything, now we're going to be looking at him as the holy one. This song is about to call worshipers into the holy place. And this song reminds us that everything is his, but especially you. You belong to God. And we cannot properly enter into the presence of God without understanding who he is. So this question that the next part asks is, who can come before the king of glory? Verse 3 says, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? It doesn't say Selah there, but I'm going to give you one because I need a drink of water. This may be the most important question that we can ever ask. And from this question stems out some other questions. How can I know God? How can I be close to God? How can I, can I be close to God? Who can be close to God? Can I know God? And how, do I be, how can I be in right relationship with God? And I know that these days, people don't think about this anymore, but this used to be a very important question throughout history. Now people are just asking themselves, how can I be happy, right? That's the question of the age. But throughout history, people have always wanted to know How can I come before God? How can I be made right with God? And out of their ignorance, a lot of people have made their own way because they did not know the way of the Lord. They have made their own idols. But there is this simple understanding that that I believe since we're created in God's image that most people have is that the God is big and that somehow I don't deserve to go before him. So this is why you see in most, this, is, this question is where most religions are birthed out of. How can I uh, uh, have a relationship with God? And unfortunately, what most people, their conclusion is that I have to do stuff to try to reach up to God. And the difference between Christianity and religions is that the, the Bible doesn't teach us about us doing stuff in order to reach God. The Bible talks about a God that knew that we couldn't reach him, so he did everything for us so that we can be united to him. How many people say thank you, Jesus, for that, right? So, so like I said, uh, the, all the religions of the world have come and, 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 uh, 
and, and come out of this question. Charles Spurgeon says, the question before us is one which should, should, the question before us is one which all should ask for themselves and none shall be at ease till they receive an answer of peace. With careful examination, let us inquire, Lord, is it I? Is it I that could come before you? Is it I that can come before the king of glory? Is it I that could come before your holy presence? And I think that when David was writing the Psalms, he, Psalm, he was probably thinking about what happened to Uzzah, who touched the presence of God and dropped dead. So Uzzah was uh, filled with presumption and, and ignorance. And today people are the same way. They think they know the way, but the only way that we can know the way of the Lord is by his word, is by knowing God personally. Everybody makes up their own way, but it doesn't mean that they'll get to the destination. And when, when David brought in the ark into the, into the, into the, the city, uh, there was revival, there was restoration, there was reformation, and, and they, because they went back to the word and they were able to regain the fear of the Lord. When Uzzah died, fear came about upon all of them. They had, oh, wait, hold up. Let me see what this is. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And fear, this fear is not like I'm afraid. This fear is, a, is, is and it's not that far from that either. You know, it's not like, eh, it's like a, it's more, it's a fear because God can destroy us. But the beautiful thing about it is that we don't, if if we have put our trust in Christ for our salvation, if we have repented of our sins, if we are born again, then we don't have to, we don't have to fear that we will be rejected. But we still have to fear the Lord because he's still the God who sits on the throne and he's still holding. So we respond to the fear by surrender. We respond to the fear by drawing close by the blood of Christ. And surrendering our lives completely to him. In verse 3 it says, uh, going back it says, uh, who, shall, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in the holy place? So we can approach God in his place of worship. And we can stand before him. And standing before him uh, speaks about judgment. But uh, David gave uh, four requirements here. He says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. He, he who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So the first one, a clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands speak about our actions. Are our actions holy? And what's interesting, he didn't say, you know, who's welcome before me? Someone that's beautiful, someone that's smart. Someone. He didn't give other requirements except those who have clean hands and a pure heart. He didn't say a person that's a good person. Because biblically, none of us really are. So it says, uh, 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 when it comes to, to a pure heart, is that our motives are pure. That the things we do, we do for the glory of God, not for our own. And although most of our actions with our hands are an expression was in our heart, I also believe that sometimes when we get our hands dirty, it starts to dirty our heart also. So again, clean hands... Holy actions, clean hearts is pure motives before the Lord. 
He also said that does not lift up his soul to what is false. And the idea here of what is false is to an idol because idols are fake. And maybe idols back then, they used to create idols out of wood and other things. Idols today are different. A lot of our idols are false perceptions of who God is or just things that we give our life to. So when he's talking about lifting up the soul, the lifting up of a soul is, is about an offering. What do you offer your life to? Do you offer your life to God? Do you offer your life to money? Do you offer your life to greed, to other things? So do you offer your life to God? And also, it's not also offering, but it's also trusting in this thing. So he said that the lifting up of the soul, not just the actions, but the heart of everything who he is or who we are. And it says, who does not sworn deceitfully. The word, uh, the word, the, the word speaks, uh, the, the, the words that we speak are indication of what's in our hearts. So this speaks to us about how we deal with others. Are we true and are we honest? Are we true before the Lord and are we true before neighbors? And this, uh, this word truth is, is kind of uh, interesting um, because these days we, uh, we want to determine our own truth. And that's basically the rebellion of, of, of Eden. To know good and evil is to determine your own truth. To know truth, we have to go back to God who is truth. But um, when I give you this, this list of what we need to be able to come before the Lord, um, I want to know if anybody has gotten that perfectly. No. <laughs> the truth is, none of us can do this perfectly. So the beauty of the gospel is that who has clean hands? Jesus. Who has a pure heart? Jesus. Who has never sworn deceitfully? And I think I skipped one. Jesus. What was the other one? My pride doesn't want me to look nothing. Now, but all these things describe Jesus. Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Praise God that he established a new covenant. And it's through the personal work of Jesus that we have received his righteousness. He carried our sin on the cross. He carried our sin. And, and, and like I said, this is for those of us that have repented of our sins and put our faith in Christ and his finished work on the cross. This forgiveness and this righteousness of Christ are for those alone. Because everybody else before coming to Christ, they come before the Lord with their own sin. We either come clothed in our own personal righteousness or we come before the Lord clothed in Jesus' righteousness. And those are the only two choices. So if we come on our own, then good luck. But like I said, if we have trusted in Christ and his finished work on the cross, then we can say when we answer this question, who shall ascend to the holy of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? We can say, through the blood of Christ, I can. Through Jesus' work on the cross, I can. Psalm 130 says, If you, O Lord, should mark our, our iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Psalm 32 says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions is forgiven." whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man 
against whom the Lord does not count his iniquity, and in those and whose spirit there is no deceit. So what is the only way that our sin is not counted against us? It is through Christ. It is through receiving Christ. Hebrews 9.12 says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of, blood, of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. 14 says, The blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And 1019 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean with, uh, from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So this is telling us that we come through the, with the blood of Christ. Through Christ, we have been made clean and we have been made whole. But it also talks about our conscience here. It also talks about so that we will not have dead works. Because the proof that Christ is in you is that you start to look like Jesus. You start to live like Jesus. You start to live in a way that honors Jesus. Because 1 John 1, 6 says that if we, say, if we say we have fellowship with him but walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So people go back and forth. You know, is it, is it the righteousness of Jesus? Do I have to live a certain way? The truth is that we separate those things, but they shouldn't be separated. He has given us his righteousness, and his righteousness is manifested in our actions. Being born again is manifested in the way that we live. And I, yes, there's a process. But there needs to be progress in that process or else we got to ask ourselves, are we born again? So even though we don't walk it perfectly, God does want us to have clean hands and to glorify him with our actions. God wants us to have pure hearts and to have pure motives when we live God wants us not to uh, uh, speak deceitfully and to be people of honesty. I keep on missing that, miss, that, that third one. Hold on, I got to think about it. Oh, man, I don't remember what it is. But the, God desires for us to live that way. Ephesians 2.10 speaks to us that we were created for good works that God has prepared for us beforehand that we shall walk in them. We cannot separate the righteousness that we have that Jesus has given us from living righteously. It's, it's a manifestation of the same thing in our lives. Verse 5 says that he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And some translation says he will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication. And vindication means to be clear of blame. So this righteousness that Jesus has given us, that we have received from the God of our salvation, it has made, it's cleansed us. It has justified us from our sin. And we receive this by faith and we walk in it. So does this mean that, that, that the, in the Old Testament people came to Christ or, or that people 
uh, earned their salvation in their actions? No, it doesn't mean that. Because God speaks to us. The word of God speaks to us in the book of Romans, uh, especially in Romans chapter 4. It speaks about Abraham, that his, that his faith was accounted to him as righteousness. So it wasn't that, they, their, that their actions did it. They had faith that in, in, as, as God continued to reveal his plan of salvation through Christ, that the sacrifices, by, they, by faith, they were cleansed of, of their actions. So anyway, so God wants us, to, we, we can only come before the Lord, this holy God through Christ, who has cleansed us, but there is a demand in our life to live a way that honors God. Amen? To glorify him. And it says here in verse 6, such is the generation of those who seek him, sorry, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So uh, in, the, in the, the, so Jacob, he had a, a situation when he was wrestling with, with, with the angel of the Lord. And it says that uh, he called that place Peniel, which, which means, uh, uh, it says, uh, like, seek his face or see his face. And he said, I saw God and I didn't die. So when it talks about seeking the face, it's talking about God's covenant people through Jacob, who God changed his name to Israel. So the people that are the covenant people of God, who today we are through faith, seek the face of the Lord. When it's talking about seeking the face of the Lord, it's talking about a consistent relationship with the Lord, coming before the Lord. We don't just get saved from our sin. God wants to have a relationship with us. And to seek the Lord is to give God your life, your heart, and your time with exclusive attention. Ask yourself, do you give exclusive attention to the Lord? In this busy time where we're always multitasking, because there's always the phone in the hand and talking to my wife, phone in the hand and talking to my daughter, phone in the hand and using the bathroom, phone in the hand, you know? So do you give exclusive time to the Lord in his word? Do you give exclusive time to the Lord in personal prayer? Do you give exclusive time to the Lord in worship? Do you give exclusive time to the Lord in meditating on his word? And I, you know, as I was studying this, I was like, man, this, this is, 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 is challenging me. We need to be people who seek the face of the Lord, not just his hand, but his face. To come before the Lord with humility, with intimacy, and with trust. Jesus died so that we can have a relationship with him. It's not just to cleanse us of our sins. And we need time with the Lord. Amen? So, Selah. Just kidding. Um, But, yeah, so, going back to verse... uh, uh, seven now and so now this this uh the 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 perspective shifts a little bit here it says lift up lift up your heads o gates and be lifted up o ancient doors that the king of glory may come in who is this king of glory the lord strong and mighty the lord mighty in battle lift up your heads o gates And lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. So the perspective changes from us coming before the presence of God to now God coming to his people. Uh, An example I I found in in, uh, 
Charles Spurgeon's uh, Treasury of David. Who you ever want to read some good books on the Psalms, it's, this is an amazing uh, resource. Treasury of David by, by uh, Charles Spurgeon. And he cited a man named Evans. And he said, when the king of England wishes to enter the city of London through the temple bar, the gate being closed against him, the herald commands entrance. Open the gate from which a voice is heard. Who is there? The herald answers. The king of England. I mean, who is there? The herald answers, the king of England. The gate is at once opened, and the king passes amid the joyful acclamation of his people. This is an ancient custom, and uh, the allusion is to the psalm. In other words, when we hear this question, so this is a little bit confusing. Uh, who's the king of glory? Who, you know, it's, it's almost like a king coming into the city, and he says, you know, and, and, he, and he's asking to let... To let uh, or the herald is asking, let him in. And there's a voice saying, who is this? Who, who's this, you know, who's this king of glory in the coming? And he says, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord uh, mighty in battle. So this, uh, this mighty procession is coming to, they used to have walls around cities before in, the, in ancient times. Not getting into all to that. But it's like this personification where the doors are giving, giving heads. Head, doors don't have heads, you know? But it's almost becoming alive, you know. The example I heard somebody use was like Beauty and the Beast, you know, where where these things became alive. So, you know, it's it's poetic language, uh, beauty, you know, poetry, and so it's saying that this is Yahweh, strong and mighty. This is Yahweh, mighty and battle. At those times, the kings did not send troops, but the kings led the troops. So as they're coming back, it's like if they're coming back from a successful. a battle that they're coming back proclaiming that this is the king of glory. So it says, lift up, lift up gates, O your heads. Um, it, it is, uh, so, when, when, so I believe that God works in our life and that he's sovereign in our lives. When we're talking about the opening up of the gates, there needs to be a position of openness towards the Lord. When the Lord is speaking to us, there needs to be a, a, a posture of open gates to our hearts and to our lives when the Lord is working. It says, who is this king of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty, Yahweh, mighty in battle. The warrior king, the strong and mighty one is coming in. Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. In other words, the Lord of heavenly armies. So one thing that we've seen from the name Yahweh always is talking about presence. So God was, was, uh, was present with Moses and his people. He talks about his presence being holy when we come before him. But now he's speaking about his presence in our life as the one that fights for us. The one who is mighty and battle. So we are to lift up the king of glory who's powerful and mighty, yet gracious and loving and cares for all of us. In verse 9, it says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, and the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So, like I said, we're talking about uh, God's presence in our lives. So, we go back to this question again. Who is this God that we serve? 
we see him as the God who is the owner and the ruler of everything, the whole earth and everything in it. And then we ask the question, who can come before the Lord? The ones that can come before the Lord are the ones that have been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. And we ask, who's this king of glory? This king of glory is the one who is present in our lives. And also, this king is coming. He came before. He's coming again. And also, we need to ask ourselves, when he comes, when, if, is there a position of openness when he speaks to us and he challenges us and he wants to, uh, things in our lives? Um, Psalm, a uh, 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 quote by J.F. Meyer says, the psalm is accomplished in us when Jesus enters our hearts as the king to reign and, and it will have its final realization when the earth and its population welcome him as its Lord. So the, does this king, does the king of glory reign in your hearts? And this is what we need to ask ourselves. Does the king of glory reign in your hearts? So um, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. As kind of awkward, I'm going to have a switch here, but I do have some application points for us. And the first one is to ask yourself, who is your king? Who is the one that rules in your life? Is it Yahweh or is it yourself? Do you become a filter to what God asks you? And you feel like you have the right to say yes or no to God? Or does he rule when he speaks through his word? Do we surrender to him? And like I said earlier, there's a throne in our hearts. And God has the, that's his rightful throne. But we have to be real and take inventory of our hearts. Is there something else sitting on our hearts? And I know, I don't know about you, for me, there are, there are things, idols, that are constantly trying to pull Jesus down. And they are the same ones using my whole life. And I call those, those things the contenders. <laughs> they contend for the throne. And I ask yourself, what are those contenders in your life? What are the things? And they're not only bad stuff. Sometimes they're good stuff. Sometimes they're good things that are just not in the right order when they sit on the throne of our hearts. So ask yourself. And the second question I want to ask is, what is God asking from you today? One thing I asked the worship, leader, uh, the worship team this morning as we did our devotional, do you know what God is work, trying to work in your life right now? What is he working in, in, in you right now? And we should always be aware of what it is that God is working in our lives. At, 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 always, always be aware. And when I'm not aware, that just means I'm not spending enough time with him. I'm not spending enough time in prayer and enough time in his word. And, and don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you're a construction project and God is trying to fix you. That's not what I'm saying. God wants life for you. And his ways are the ways of life. His ways are the ways of joy. And he wants to mold you. The Spirit of God wants to mold you from the inside out to become more and more like Jesus. And the third one is, 
dedicate, oh, I think I had a typo, dedicate time to seek the face of the Lord.